All right. Well, good evening to you. And I am grateful to uh, have this opportunity to be with you and to be with Mike, of course, a dear friend and man of God. Uh, let's begin in the fashion that we should always begin in, and let's ask the Lord for his blessing together. Our Father, we come to you tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we would like to ask you to do something very common for you, very, very familiar to you, and that's that you would bless us with your word. But we, we make this simple request, Father, for we are very, I don't know how to say this, uh, desperately aware that we as your finite creatures can spoil the precious treasures of the scriptures. We can distort, we can misspeak, and we can, we can uh, uh, miscommunicate your truth. So we're asking that you would visit us with a special measure of the Spirit of God so that his teaching ministry would be what is heard tonight, so that the people of God are edified tonight and souls would come to Christ in Christ alone, in faith alone, by grace alone. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin immediately by reading some scriptures with you tonight. And as we read them, my goal, is, of course, is that you would be able to pick up on the theme of what we'll be discussing. The theme, I'll give you a hint, is, is related to Mike's closing words at the end of his message last hour. So let's read now. Uh, we'll begin, first of all, in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And I'd like you to, to see the text there. So I'll give you a second to look at that. John 9, 3. Um, the disciples had asked the Lord Jesus about the man born blind, and, and, and they said, now who sinned? Uh, was it uh, this man or his parents? As a common theological concept of the day, that all physical ills were the result of someone's sin. And so the Lord Jesus answers in a very, uh, I wouldn't say cryptic way, but a very subtle way. And he says this, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So he removes their question, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see that word revealed, known, announced, all right? Now turn over to John chapter 11, please. John chapter 11. We have um, somewhat of a more dire situation. Lazarus, a dear friend of the Lord Jesus, as well as his two sisters, Martha and Mary, they had... Um, uh, they had been well acquainted with the Savior. The Savior, it appears, had spent many hours at their home and night stay. Um, we don't have a record of the Lord Jesus spending the night in Jerusalem. He always seemed to have left the city, and it is assumed, uh, perhaps with great um, uh, evidence, that he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So they were close. So when Mary and Martha sent word to the Lord Jesus that Lazarus was sick, it was, uh, it was really sort of um, a request from a, a friend, you know, a, a close, uh, close associate, a dear family member. And so uh, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. That's in verse three. Look at verse four. When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified through it. So, obviously, I'm speaking of the glory of God. You see, the neo-atheist has said that the glory of God is an egotistical concept designed to fulfill some sort of unusual narcissism uh, housed in the, in the uh, Godhead, is the, is the allegation. Well, that, I have to say, is um, a lie. 
God's glory is much more pristine, beautiful, um, pure than that concept, than that allegation. Now, I said to you that our our message tonight would be related to what Michael or what Mike said tonight, and he said that it is our privilege to glory in the cross, and that we have failed to glory in the cross as we should. We have failed to see its splendor, its wonder, its attraction, its majesty, and he is totally right. I would also suggest to you that as we glory in the cross, <coughs> as we glory in the cross, what we should understand is that this whole redemptive story, including the cross, glorifies God. Just like these early passages I read in introduction, those incidents, whether you were born blind or whether Lazarus was sick, they're all designed to bring maximum elevation to God in all of his economy and doings. And the gospel does the same. Let me read this to you. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. There's a recurrent phrase there that speaks to this this, uh, observation. In Ephesians chapter 1, it's quite familiar to most of us, of course, and I'll read beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Clearly, the phrase in Christ will be repeated somewhere around 12 to 13 times in various forms. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And wait for it, it's in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. All of those salvation terms, which have a very uh, cosmic-like feel, predestination, uh, before the foundation of the world, they all culminate to one central theme, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now let's read the second paragraph, and you can divide this opening um, passage into these paragraphs. It says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's salvific or salvation terminology. Uh, The forgiveness of sins, that's salvation terminology. According to the riches of his grace, salvation terminology, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according, again, to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, uh, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That speaks and foreshadows of the language of chapter three, where we're all in one body and the uh, the, uh, middle wall of partition is broken down. In him, we have obtained an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And wait for it. Here it is that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of the glory of his grace. All of that salvation language leads us to do one thing, to the glory of God. And finish the last paragraph, in whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Look at that. There's the terms again. And whom also having believed, very important element of salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Mike mentioned the Holy Spirit. And who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of his purchased possession. And wait for it. To the praise of the glory. To the praise of his glory. You see... I think tonight we need to talk about the glory of God. 
that's a fascinating attribute mixed in with all of his finger mixed into the dough of his creation by the very kneading fingertips of God as he massages the workings of God in connection with the workings of man so that in the end there is a beautiful majestic masterpiece to his glory i think that's the right thing this is not some sort of weirdo um, uh, plan of a, of a deity that is somewhat uh, self-absorbed. Self this is the way it's supposed to be. All right, so tonight I want to begin by the definition. What is the definition of the glory of God? Now, in the Old Testament, there is a very interesting verse. It's Genesis 31, verse 1. And I must express a bit of an apology to you because we will look at this theme, but it will require us to look at multiple passages. And yes, I realize that when we do a study of this nature, that we are putting ourselves at risk to, for misinterpretation. And the reason being is because we don't have the time to develop the context of each passage. So I'm asking you to trust me on some of this as we would go through these passages together. Genesis 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has acquired all his wealth. That word wealth is kabod. It, it simply means a great quantity. It's the predominant word used for the glory of God. And so we have this, I think they call it the semantic range in development, where the meaning begins to to take place, and we can kind of get a shade of the of the meaning here. Now, what is, it, what is it referring to when Jacob was taking all of his wealth? Well, he wasn't just taking all of the, um, the, the, the livestock, the goats and the sheep and the various ones that, that were um, acclaimed by Laban, where God switched the, switched the strategy to allow Jacob to get ahead. But it was also a status. It was also a notoriety, wealth of, of, of being known for your riches. And so there is inferred a sense of reputation and honor. Now, this comes to you in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 13. Genesis 45 and verse 13. Bear with me as we do the hard labor of Bible study for a few moments, but look at Genesis 45 and verse 13. This is when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and he says, now I want you to go back to, to Egypt and tell my father, verse 13, all of all my glory in Egypt. Now, that's more than wealth, isn't it? That's more than the riches, <coughs> excuse me, more than the riches that he's amassed in Egypt. Excuse me, I need a drink of water. But what it is, is all of his fame, all of his notoriety. He's prime minister and he's running the country. You tell my father of all of that you see, not just the gold palaces, not just uh, the servants, but all of the glory that's here. You see, that's the idea. It involves reputation, honor, notoriety. And in this case, it involves an inference of sovereignty, of rule, of significance. Now, in the Old Testament, we have a term called, we use it quite liberally, it's called Shekinah. And we use it in terms of the Shekinah glory of God. And so we, we have the concept of kabod, which indicates significance, wealth, reputation, honor, esteem, sovereignty. But the word Shekinah has this idea of the, 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 um, the presence of the Lord. 
So uh, because of time is uh, because time is precious this evening, I will remind you of the incident in um, in uh, Numbers chapter fourteen. And as they were having this uh, intertribal dispute, it says the glory of the Lord appeared. It means the the idea of the presence of the Lord, usually typified in some manner, such as smoke or a cloud, sometimes fire. And this Shekinah glory of God was sort of the sterilizing aspect of all things that was happening to the people of God. They were arguing and they dropped their arguments and stepped away from the car, if you will, stepped away from the moment. It's very, it's, it's interesting. You almost get a little picture of that when you have uh, small children and they're sort of bickering and fighting and the parent walks into the room and suddenly the children are perfect angels, if you will. They're sitting there working on their little drawings or their little iPads or whatever they're doing as if nothing was in the matter. You see, the presence of the parent had a sort of a sterilizing effect. There was a persona, there was a, an authority, there was a, a, a sovereignty that entered the room, and our little petty things need to dissolve. That's what the glory of God was doing, the Shekinah glory. Now, it's much richer than that, of course. I'm only explaining it in the context of Numbers chapter 14. The Shekinah glory, the presence of the Lord was so significant that in Chronicles, when they uh, brought the ark to the temple, the, the glory of the Lord was so bright, so brilliant, that the priests could not continue their services with sacrifices. The same thing happened when Solomon was uh, had finished the temple and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter. So it has not only this wealth, this reputation, this sovereignty, this presence of majesty and dispelling uh, and, and distributing all holiness, but it has such a manner that it's a sort of an inapproachable light, and that actually is used in the New Testament by Paul to describe God. And it dwells in inapproachable light, and so we have this sort of sort of um, glory of God pictured in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say? It uses the word doxa, which signifies opinion or estimate. What is your opinion? or estimate. So we have um, this idea for us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 29. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 29. As you're turning there, I'll make my apologetic disclaimer that I'm sorry I'm moving so fast tonight, but I feel that we have much to talk about. So when he's talking about doxa in uh, um, Matthew chapter 6, 29, he is, it's in the context of saying of, of not worrying for tangible things uh, and, and talking about how God provides for you. And he makes a comparison with Solomon. Solomon would be the wealthiest king of all the Israeli kings ever in history. And so he uses the, uses the pinnacle of the kingly line in terms of wealth. Look at what he says. Um. So why do you worry, verse 28, about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, nor they neither toil or spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory. Oh, it's a similar concept to Kabad, this sort of reputation like, like, like um, a Joseph, this sort of honor, privilege, this wealth. Everybody knew Solomon across the world. They would travel far and wide to gain his wisdom. They would, they would bring him gifts. And so his wealth increased by all these gifts. So the, this, this brilliance of this man. I don't know if you've ever met a person like that. I've 
I've known many people in, in my years of training. And I have to say some of those people that I learned from were, were just absolutely giants, brilliant geniuses, like talking with, with what I imagine would have been Dr. Einstein, just, just, just how did you think of that? Where did you get that concept and that theory? You know, And so, so we have this as a sort of a, a measurement of a comparison, if you will, with, with Solomon. And he's saying, you know, God clothed them with all of that mag- majesty. That's the idea that that's the word used for God himself, this brightness the brightness of God, the honor of God. Luke chapter 14, verse 10, brightness, Acts 22, verse 11, his mighty might in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. So there's a real definition, if you will, and I'll summarize it. It's this this quality of God in which he has not only um, all wealth, but wealth both intangible and uh, intangible, such that there is an elevation of his already position of sovereignty, an elevation of his already importance and significance, an elevation of his honor, so that if you were to gaze in a physical way at the, at the God of the universe, his brightness would be too much for our meager eyes to perceive and 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 uh, and visualize this this glory of God is is uh, is massive in in all that He is. It's it's just the way God is. He's glorious. Now, what what you'll find later on in our discussion tonight is Satan competed for that glory. Man competes for that glory, and and it was even said in the in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It says. Let no man glory in his presence. You, sh- you cannot compete with the glory of God. Now, having said that, there is a priority given to the glory of God. I mentioned to you the priority of dispelling the issues of dispute and numbers, the glory of God that, that pre- prevented the temple priests from doing their jobs. And, and uh, uh, I, I mentioned to you uh, the New Testament, but let me, let me highlight some of the Psalms. Psalm 8, don't turn to these because we have much to do tonight. Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The heavens was considered the highest seat. You know, that's where the intangible um, arena of where of, of, of God and, and his glory is above that, reigns above that. The heavens declare the glory of God. They're like reflectors of the glory of God. Psalm 24, who is the king of glory? You know, we have kings of, of nations. We have kings of, of wealth. We have kings of ideas. But how about the king of glory? That's the, that's the most brilliant or the highest metric possible. Psalm 72, blessed be the Lord, blessed be his glorious name, his identification of title. That even portrays the glory of God. Um, Psalm 96, give, declare his glory among the nations. Give to the Lord glory due to his name. You see, because of his glory. He is due a certain measure of honor. It's just the way it's supposed to be. I mean, how can how can finite uh, expect to be glorified when there is someone infinite in the room? He he takes the place. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, uh, Isaiah caught a glimpse of this. He said, "Holy, the whole earth is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory," and it caused Isaiah to see his reduced 
presence in the presence of God. I am an undone man. I am, I am a, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And it's the glory of God that would act out to take away his iniquity. You see, it's a glorious thing for God to do what he did in the salvation process, the redemptive story. No one else in all of the creative order could even come close to doing what God would do. Thus, the salvation, the gospel that we proclaim, as Mike so thoroughly and movingly encouraged us, is going to proclaim the glory of God. You see, it's, it's really a priority, isn't it? Ephesians mentioned that. Now, uh, just to, to help us understand that, I, I want you to read a verse in Ma- Malachi chapter 2 and verse 2. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 2. It is our responsibility to maximize the glory of God. And I've run through several scriptures tonight, some that illustrated the definition, some that talked of the priority in the Psalms and the prophets. But now we have a responsibility, a responsibility in this opening segment, and it's as priests. Now, I want you to read this with me. This is a book that indicts the priest. I just might add and you should think of this in terms of application to our respond, our execution of our duties as priests of the New Testament. Listen to the indictment of old. Verse one, oh, now, priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear it, then you, and if you will not, excuse me, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name. What is the commandment? To give glory to his name. He's saying the one job, one responsibility that I have given you as priests is to kabod, to lift up, to show the significance and glory of God. What do you think our job is? What do you think that should be? Well, I'll give you a hint. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says that the church is designed to declare the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers. It's this idea that the principalities and powers, the unseen forces, the unseen angelic beings of the universe, where God had given them a measure of custodianship, of custodian uh, responsibilities, he says, I'm going to take an order lower than you, the human race, so that they could declare to you the grandness of who I am. But the angels are closer to his presence than we are. Gabriel said he's in the very presence of God, right? Well, we are too now in Christ. You see, the point that I'm making is we have a responsibility, don't we? And our responsibility is to see, and forgive me for this word, I have have to look it up every time I say it, but the meta-narrative of God, the big story of God, we are intricately involved with this glory idea. And salvation fits perfectly into this movement of God through history, through his his way. The glory of God is a big issue. Paul said it this way. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. For of whom, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You see? Paul said to us very clearly that the glory of God, the glory of the salvation process, or the the purpose of the salvation process, 
is to bring glory to him. Such that when we speed up the clock from the writing of the first century where Romans was, and we move the clock to a writing that indicates time in heaven after the, our rapture to heaven, we find the saints of heaven saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne forever. You hear that? We will never get away from this concept of glorifying God. It's intricate. It's intimate in the salvific process and our redemptive story. Galatians, Ephesians, I've mentioned it to you. Galatians says, to whom be glory forever. Of course, Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church. There is an end, there's a, so there's a glory uh, that's res our responsibility for the believer, the New Testament believer, collectively or corporately from the church coming together and proclaiming it. But it's also individual. Each individual is to have this responsibility. It says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, uh, uh, referring to individual practice. In a passage that talks about masters and slaves, very individualistic conversation, he says, do all in the name of the Lord, all for the glory of God. First Peter 4, 11, that in all things, God may be glorified in your suffering, in your personal persecution, do all things so that God may be glorified. You see, God is wanting his whole economy, both the large vision, the macroscopic vision of, of strategy and the microscopic individual who is part of that strategy to reflect and bring and, and, and add to the glory of God, to excel in it, to, to proclaim it, to magnify the glory of God. You see, it's a priority in the Bible. It's not something we can just sort of uh, 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 pretend we don't know. We have to do some investigation. Remember the Lord Jesus. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. We're given a chance to see face-to-face -face what the Old Testament saints could never see face-to-face. -face. Hebrews 12, or Hebrews 1 says it this way. He is the brilliance, the radiance, effulgence of his glory. He shines forth. And I would like to add this. We are image bearers of God. He made us in his image and likeness. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. There's a laundry list of what that means. Intelligence, emotion, creativity, custodian, being custodian of the earth and, and, and sovereign rule. I, I understand and all those have some valid uh, elements to it, but I would like to suggest that we are at the bare rawest minimum, uh, an image likeness kind of concept means that we reflect the glory of God. The one thing God is. So that when he saves us, what does he say? I have predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And who is the son? Who is, what, is, what is the image of, of the son? Well, it's the express glory of God, the exact radiance of his glory. Meaning, if we are to be conformed to that image, we're we are image bearers of God's glory too. So God is taking us in this redemptive plan from a breach of being marred from being a glory reflector of God and reestablishes us to being that very thing that was torn and ripped to shreds at the Garden of Eden. My friends, we've got a huge purpose here, don't we? We've got a purpose that supersedes any sort of uh, uh, investment strategy, that supersedes any sort of career advance, advancement um, uh, plan or process. This 
is what life is made of, bringing glory to God. Now, the Lord Jesus said that this illness is not unto death, but so that God might be glorified in it. Let, let, me, let me reinterpret that for you with all due respect to the Spirit of God. This life is not for your own self. This life is for the glory of God. I think somehow we have lost our way. And we've, got fan, we've gotten tickled and enamored with all the other things that are glorious, that are bright, that glitter, that show us uh, uh, tantalizing elements of this society, of this culture, of this age. And we are forgetting that there is a glory and a majesty that is so much greater, so much larger, so much grander than that. And we're like the little children playing in the room and, the, and our parent walks in and, and, and we're failing to recognize the stature of our great father his glory. I call us back to that tonight with all due respect. I call us back to the big picture, to the meta narrative of God. And when we do so, that's salvation glory, the glory of the cross. How can we not? It's an integral part of what he's taught us. Now, I spent a lot of time talking in this opening segment um, about the glory of God, and I've defined it and I've, I've spoken of its priority, both in, in the idea of, of Old Testament prophet and our responsibility. I've talked about it in terms of New Testament terminology and our um, uh, uh, making it our priority, both corporately and as well as individuals. But I want to switch in this next major point to something I call protest. Protest. Now, if you remember in Isaiah 14, um, Satan tried to assault the glory of God. Now, let's go back and read it for the sake of completeness. Isaiah chapter 14 is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible about Satan's thinking, Satan's um, initiative. And when we read this, you will find that these statements of his are all about stealing the glory of God. He was the highest cherub, it says, and it also says that he was enamored with himself, lifted up with pride because of his beauty. And when that happened, he assumed that with his great beauty, he could be one that could take the place of God. So he says it this way, I will ascend, and this is in verse 13, you have said in your heart, in other words, it wasn't even said out loud, I will ascend into heaven, that's the throne of God, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, almost a reference to the highest princes, the highest angelic orders, I will be above them, look at this, I will sit on the mount of the congregation, that's, that's an interesting statement, and is somewhat reflective that within heaven, there may be a mountain which God dwells on, which, uh, which really speaks to the culture of that time of how they viewed, uh, how they viewed um, uh, idols and, and the gods behind those idols. Or it has a reference to this concept of, of even the, the pinnacle of, of Jerusalem upon the earth being God's city. He said, I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That definitely seems to refer to Jerusalem, where all the kings conquered Jerusalem from the north side because it was a place of higher advantage. In other words, I will conquer you. I will take you out, is what he's saying. Uh, and I will be like the most high. He, he doesn't use the title of uh, covenant-keeping God like Jehovah, because he wasn't interested in, co in covenant. He was using titles that bespeak of power and grandeur and, and might. 
And he's saying, I will be like that. I will force my way. It was an assault on the glory of God. That's what it was. Now, as you recall, it, it went very poorly because he was cast out of heaven. Now, the second member of the Trinity was an eyewitness, as you would expect. The Trinity was all there. But the second person of the Trinity, i.e. Jesus, said, I was there when Satan fell from heaven like a lightning bolt. Means quick and, and, and directive and, and, and definitive. Immediately cast out without, without any uh, other process involved. You see, you cannot exalt, you cannot assault the glory of God. You can't. It's, it's intolerable to the throne. There are cherubim there designed to protect that. Now, if you get cast down to the earth, that is out of heaven, and you're now on a place in the universe in which God handcrafted and put on it a person who is an image bearer and reflector of God's glory, what's the next best thing to do? Steal the glory of God on the earth. And who might that be? That would be man and really a subsequent woman because a woman reflects the glory of man and man reflects the glory of God. If I can get both of them, I got the whole enchilada. So what does he do? Well, he lies to the one and he creates a situation where Adam wants to disobey God. Now, this is a very diabolical um, uh, methodology. It's one thing to lie to somebody and they join your team because you've lied, you've lied to them and they don't know any better. But it's another thing for you to create a scenario where the uh, person on the other side of the fence wants to join your team. You see, if a spouse says to the other spouse, I've met someone and they promised me this and this riches and this car and this life and, 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 and I believe them. It's, it's painful, but you can also understand what you've just been duped. But if that person comes to you and says, well, I don't love you like I used to love you, well, that's way more agonizing, isn't it? Because they know the full facts, they know the full deal, and they're making a conscious decision to turn away from their spouse. You see, this is what Satan was doing. He did it on both accounts. He fooled the one and he got Adam to go of his own will. And God even said that you obeyed the voice of your wife and not my voice. When I told you what you should and shouldn't do, God laid it out. This is exactly what was happening in your life. So Satan went after the glory of God, trying to inflict the greatest pain to the heart of God. Can you see that? That's, that's diabolical. So when we talk about the glory of God, recognize that there was a coup attempt to steal the glory of God. It failed in heaven and was successful on the earth. And so when we talk about this idea of, of, of bringing uh, God, reestablishing his glory through the redemptive story and making us conform to the image of his son, this is just not some sort of uh, play or or um, a movie script that he picked up. This is, this is correcting the, the, the things that have been happening in the unseen world. So we are part of that. We are part of the visible world, and he's bringing us in to reestablish his glory. Saints, what are we thinking? This life is not about what you can possess. This life is not about what riches of inheritance or riches of relationship you can, you can foster. This life is about the glory of God, and there's many things at play. What are we doing 
wallowing in that which is going to be burned up. I don't know. I'm shocked at myself. Steve, where are you thinking? This is not a this is not a life that is meant to be for just your glory, Steve. It's about the glory of God. It's bigger than you, my friend. As we in this Easter conference, I, I want that to be resonating in your ears. This is bigger than you. It's about the glory of God. Well, if you recall, the angels had witnessed the whole thing, right? The non-fallen angels. They had seen the, the Lord and, 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 and saw what Satan did, Lucifer did in heaven. They witnessed what happened in the garden. And the angelic host, the principalities and powers, they're all through woven all through the biblical narrative. They, 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 they showed up in forms like the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. They were there in various forms, uh, uh, governing and guiding nations in Daniel. It, it's no wonder then that they were there to announce the coming of the birth of Christ to the shepherds and that they were there when they were announcing the birth or the pregnancy to, to Joseph and Mary and then the birth to the shepherds. And then they were there when the Lord Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted and they were there in the garden of Gethsemane and they were there at the moment when the, when the tomb was opened and he was raised from the dead and they are there today in the church gazing upon the manifold wisdom of God with a series of participants who are supposed to get this, to understand this, and be involved in the vindicative process of the glory of God. I don't think we can sit on the sidelines, do you? I don't think we can sort of play dumb, do you? I don't think we can ignore this, do you? I think we should take a moment this Easter and we should say, what is this going to be about? My glory or his glory? I've made my choice. I pray you would do the same. Now, of all that I said this evening, I'm not sure what time I'm supposed to end, but I'm thinking it's 7.15. But of all that I said this evening, I want you to know that although there's a priority to his glory and that's enough, although there was a protest and God is reestablishing the right order with his glory and that's enough, he did something more. He earned it. No, he didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to earn it at all, but he earned it. So it's proper for his glory. Now, how did he earn it? Well, it was cited by my dear friend, Mike, earlier. I love preaching with Mike. We always use each other's scriptures. That's great. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is what I'm referring to. Mike read this earlier, quoted it, I believe. Philippians chapter 2. The point here is that it's proper because he earned it. This is the major point of this discussion. And I'm stalling because I can't find the scriptures. There we go. Now, look at this. Um, concept here. It says in verse 5 of chapter 2 in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Now, when it says that, you have to say, well, what mind is this? What attitude is this? And the, the attitude is really in, in verses 1 through 4, where he says there's a lot of things going for you, consolation of the spirit and unity and all that stuff. And he says, and so in light of that, I want you to think uh, this way. Don't do anything with selfish ambition, 
or empty conceit, meaning Jesus did not have any selfish ambition or empty conceit. Satan did. He said, Christ, why don't you go ahead and bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. The Lord didn't dispute that he had that authority to do that. The Lord had another agenda that he was going to be humiliated and then glorified. He's not going to short, shortcut the plan of God, plan of his father. So he did not think of himself. He esteemed others as better than himself. He esteemed you and me. You and me as better than himself. He is the God of gods, my friends. And this God is thinking of you and me as having more value than himself. Therefore, he would not look out for his own interests. He would scout out the horizon and find the interests of mankind of his beloved creature. And the interest and the need of mankind was not riches, but salvation. And so he, although he existed in the form of God, verse 6, he did not consider it robbery. It would not be a stretch for him to claim the throne, nor would it have been a stretch for him to defend the throne. Just like the Romans of his day, just like the Caesars going all the way back to Brutus and Octavian. But instead, he took the form, the very uh, mold of a bondservant. He uses that word first. If you're, if you're in the Greco-Roman society, you knew exactly what a bondservant was. You knew exactly what a bondservant did. You knew exactly how society treated the bondservant as if they were a throwaway, styrofoam, plastic piece of life. And that's what Jesus Christ was, had chose as his, as his uh, uh, mold upon the earth. Not, it wasn't just man. It was the bondservant, like an animal, like a mule, like an ox. What's he saying? I'm taking the lowest position in all of human society so you would know. You will know that I'm willing to go so low, as low as necessary, to save you. Now, remember the angelic hosts? They were there the whole time. They were there when Satan, when the when Satan was trying to assault the throne of God. And some even indicate that maybe he was trying to attack the second person of the Trinity, especially given the temptations that we have on record. They were there, they saw it all. They saw when Jesus Christ was born. They saw the humiliation of being a baby in an order. In a, in, a, in a creation order, lower than themselves, lower than themselves. You would think that if Jesus was going to, that Christ was going to enter the earth, <coughs> he would surely take the highest station of the earthly order. He should surely be born in a palace. He should surely have all the accolades uh, worthy of a king. And he had the worship of a bunch of shepherds and, and a bunch of animals and a bunch of guys that were from a faraway country. That would be shocking enough for the angelicals. But if you were an angel and you knew exactly where Jesus had come from and exactly where he was, and to hear him on the cross, perhaps say the full Psalm 22, when it says, I am a worm and no man. You see what he's doing? I, I'm not a man. I'm just a piece of, of, of life that is used to be crushed so that others might have royal robes. That's what those worms are used for, according to Spurgeon. He was saying, I'm lower than the order of man. That's the bondservant. 
You see, this is what he did. And thus it was expressed in his obedience to the cross. There's a direct correlation with the glory of God. He is earning it. He doesn't have to, but he is. And he's doing it in a most, uh, uh, how do we say, explicative way, the most declarative way, the, the br brightest way to say this. He does it with his life, does it with his status, with his position, veils God in human flesh so that he might be in the form of a bondservant. Doesn't release his godness. No, that's ridiculous because we can see his omniscience and his omnipotence at every turn and twist of the earthly uh, ministry. But he veils it, he curtails it. So he gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he gets sleepy, he gets tired. He has to have his diapers changed. He earned the right to be exalted. The father saw that. And as you know, in this passage, it says next that, uh, uh, that. The Father has also highly exalted him. That's glory. And given him as a name which is above every name. That's glory. That every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's glory uh, of those in heaven and those on earth and those that are under the earth. That's glory. And it's reminiscent of Revelation chapter 5. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, that's glory. He did not have to do what he did to be glorified. But he did it anyway, my friends. He earned it. He so earned it. So the glory of God has a priority. The glory of God should be there because of the protest. The glory of God is there because it was proper. He earned it. But I want to end with this this evening. The glory of God is personal. Turn to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 6. Proverbs chapter 17. And verse six, it's a, it's a little obscure verse that I find great value in. And it says this children are children's children. That's the grandchildren are the crown of old men. I just found out today. We're going to have our seventh grandchild. I don't know if you've noticed tonight, but I have another crown there. The crown of old men, but I want you to read the second half of the verse. And the glory of children is their father. Now, proverbial literature is written in a manner that is supposed to speak of generalities. It's supposed to speak of sort of, this is how things are generally characterized, how we characterize things in general. And generally speaking, children really glory Kabod in their fathers. I didn't understand that. I didn't. Until my firstborn asked me to come to their school. I was a young doctor then. She was about five years old. She came to me and said, Daddy, tomorrow is let you know, show and tell dad day. And I was wondering if you could come to my school and you could tell us what you do for me. I said, I wouldn't even let her finish the sentence. I'll be there. Absolutely. So that night I got my starchest white coat that I had. It had on in red, bold red letters, Dr. Stephen Price, MD, F-A-C-E-P, D-U-M-B. That was a joke. It didn't have D-U-M-B, but that, you know, I've added that for effect. And, and I walked in there, I could hardly move in that white coat. And I had this doctor's bag, a brown doctor's bag. It was like Mary Poppins bag. Okay. I had everything in there known to mankind. I mean, it was in there. I'm standing there next to the fireman. 
I'm staring at his navel. The guy is huge. The guy is huge. I look up to like 10,000 feet to Mount Everest and I say, hey, how you doing up there? He's looking at me like I'm a cockroach. I'm doing fine. Oh, great, great. So he gets up there and he's pretty impressive. Now comes my turn. And I get up there. I'm a short little squatty guy, you know. I put my bag on the table. And as you know, I, I tried to be dramatic. I open that up like Mary Poppins opened her little bag. And I start to put my arm down there up to my armpit. And I'm pulling out these, these crutches and these hyper, I'm exaggerating, of course, hypodermic needles and stethoscopes that are 10 feet long. And boy, all those five-year-olds are going, Ooh, ah. And I look back and there's my little girl standing on a chair, pointing at me, going, that's my dad. That's my dad. That's my dad. I'll never forget it. Children, my child was glorying in her father. And in that moment, my heart was welded to that little girl. Today, she's 34 years old, and she announced that she's going to have another child. That little girl is still very precious to me. Now, let me ask you, if you, this happens on a human level, don't you think that one of the reasons why the glory of God is so important is so that he can have his heart welded to you when you glory in him. Yes, I agree. I think that's it. It's, it's a priority, absolutely. There was a protest, absolutely. There was, a, there was a proper earning of it, absolutely. But don't forget that this is personal with God. This is personal because it's between him and you. And you almost get the clear evidence, the clear picture that although glory of the, of the highest rank is, 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 is appropriate, he also wants it to draw you in, to have you as his own, to call you my dear child. There's nothing more special to that, special than that between a, a parent and in my case, my daughter. So listen, tonight, as we close this conference, I'm going to ask you in conclusion, what are you thinking? You see, I've spent a lot of my life glorifying myself. I was listening to somebody pray the other day, and he said, oh, Father, I pray, let us not glorify ourselves. It just stuck to me. I spent a lot of my life doing that, and I'm so ashamed of that. I'm so desperately ashamed of that. Why would I ever think that's a viable option when the greatest has already gotten on his knees to wash the disciples' feet? Why would I ever think of myself above that? Why would I ever consider that lower than me when the greatest has made it his life's work. Oh, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with us? What is wrong with this church? We should not be thinking like this. The glory of God should be our greatest, our greatest stay, our greatest uh, admiration, our greatest goal, our, our greatest, our greatest love. For he is worthy of all glory, isn't he? 
One of the benefits of that redemptive story is it gives us bona fide reason to praise him. And thus you read in Ephesians three times, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of God. So my question, the one I want you to ponder, the one I want you to take away tonight is this one. Is it about all, is it really about the glory of God for you? And if it's not, is it not time, is it not time for it to be all about the glory of God? You see, when we reflect on the majesty of the cross, when the day is done, it brings glory to God. No one is a non-participant in this. If you choose to be on the sidelines, you've chosen not to be part of the grand glory of God. But if you choose to engage, you will be one of those who I predict that the judgment seat of Christ will be said to have brought glory to him. It's the praise of the glory of his grace. I want to be part of that crowd, don't you? I want to be part of that crowd that, that resonates with the throngs of saints that can't stop singing. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Beloved, I call us to be that kind of people. People that can't wait to glimpse our Savior. I should stop, don't you think? I think you're tired. I'm so tired too. But let's pray. Dear Father, this kind of uh, discussion has a way of... Uh, silencing our hearts certainly silences mine we are but the children and you've walked into the room and we sort of recognize maybe we're not doing the right thing and the right thing is not about a different activity it's about a different focus it's not a it's not about a different practice it's about a different perspective give us this perspective father Father, you and I have been private many moments these last four weeks. I prayed for revival in our circles of the assemblies. Father, would it not be appropriate to grant us illumination to the significance of your glory so that we might be revived and see afresh in your brilliant light the great truths of the redemptive story? the cross in all its glory, the beauties of the Savior. And our hearts would be so resonating, so galvanized to the, to the beauty of you that we will never be the same people ever again. Father, this is a perfect time, if I may be so bold, for your spirit to do this special work of grace in the body of Christ today. I ask you, in the beautiful name of your son, amen.